fiscal conservatism is for everyone. Catch the David Webb Show on demand. SiriusXM.com slash on demand. In part two of our MCRD Museum Foundation Spotlight, the Vietnam War comes into full view. The docent who took me on a briefing tour, First Lieutenant Mike West, USMC retired. Mike joined the foundation as a docent in 2009, and during his time he's been a board member, a life member of the foundation, and he continues to volunteer his time and expertise to the Command Museum, one of the three official museums of the Marine Corps. In Vietnam, he served as a motor transport officer for the 9th Motor Transport Battalion, 3rd Marine Division in Vietnam as a platoon commander, company executive officer, and company commander in the Northern I Corps. After Vietnam, he finished his active duty with the 5th Tank Battalion at Camp Pendleton, and in addition to supporting the Command Museum's mission to train our current Marine recruits on Training Day 56, many of you know that reference, it is because of volunteers like him that the Command Museum is able to support the mission of the Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego, the Western Recruiting Region, and serve as a bridge to the civilian community. This is the Vietnam Gallery in the uh, Historical Museum at Marine Corps Recruit Depot San Diego. Uh, I am a docent. I've been a docent in this museum for almost nine years now. And I'm also a Vietnam veteran. I served in Vietnam 1967 to 1968 through 1968. And uh, lastly, you get a little bonus from me because eight years ago I went back and spent uh, two weeks in Vietnam exploring the old battlefields and uh, the areas in the Northern I Corps where I operated in. And uh, so uh, it was quite an experience to come back and have people waving at you instead of shooting at you. Uh, I was a member of the 3rd Marine Division. I was a Marine officer and a company commander and operated, uh, the 3rd Marine Division operated along the demilitarized zone, which is delineated by the 17th parallel on this map, which uh, Marines were not allowed to go over the 17th parallel and put boots on the ground in North Vietnam, but we did use artillery and air, air power to uh, uh, help defend ourselves along the demilitarized zone. The 3rd Marine Division operated in the, primarily in the north part of Vietnam, and the 1st Marine Division operated in the more uh, jungle environment around Da Nang in uh, south and southwest of I-Corps. Uh, Quick history, Vietnam was a French colony and uh, the French were soundly defeated by a, an insurgent force called the Viet Minh led by an individual named Ho Chi Minh who wanted to have a united Vietnam and incidentally be under him as a communist dictator. Uh, the French were soundly defeated in the Battle of Dien Bien Phu which took place right up here in the, uh, the mountains and it was decided that we would have two countries in Vietnam. We would have South Vietnam, which would be a republic, and we'd have North Vietnam, which would be a dictatorship led by Ho Chi Minh under communist rule, and uh, that's the way it started. It didn't last very long. Ho Chi Minh decided that he would like to get uh, his dream of a unified Vietnam, and he started an insurgency in the South called the Viet Cong. And the Viet Cong started uh, the classic insurgency. Uh, I describe it as farmers by day and fighters by night. And uh, 
they were pretty much held in check by the South Vietnamese Army, called the Arvin. And in 1964, Ho Chi Minh started sending additional forces from North Vietnam along what's called the Ho Chi Minh Trail to assist the Viet Cong in fighting against the Republic of South Vietnam. South Vietnam asked for help. America started with advisors. And in 1964, the Marines landed in Da Nang, 1st Marine Division. And uh, following up on the Marine uh, motto of first to fight, I landed in Vietnam and started providing security around the Da Nang airfield and uh, that area around there, followed closely by the 3rd Marine Division, which is uh, uh, fought and was assigned the area right along the demilitarized zone, the 17th parallel. And uh, that was more conventional warfare from day one because most of the civilians were evacuated from that area. And then we also, uh, the area was extensively defoliated with something called Agent Orange, which gets notoriety later. And in uh, the first couple of years that the Marines and then the additional Army units in the South fought, fought very successfully against both the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army. In uh, 1965, there was the first major battle of, uh, in Northern I-Corps by the Marines. That was called Operation Starlight. And there's a panel uh, right behind uh, you over there. Uh, Operation Starlight shows the Marines fighting a conventional warfare against Viet Cong and NVA. Operation Starlight was a tremendous success. As you can see by that uh, uh, panel, uh, the Marine has an M14 rifle. He doesn't wear a flak jacket yet and took on a, an extensive force and roundly defeated them just south of Da Nang. Operation Starlight also revealed another fatal uh, weakness in our ground effort over there is that we were introduced to rocket-propelled grenades because we had armor and troop carriers that were employed in Operation Starlight and they were quickly disabled by one soldier, one enemy soldier with a little rocket on his shoulder which would put a 50 silver dollar size hole in the armored vehicle and spray hot metal throughout the inside of the armored vehicle. So we uh, had to change our tactics and uh, Operation Starlight was the, the genesis of changing our tactics. At the same time, we took on the North Vietnamese Army up in Northern I Corps, uh, continued to fight the, the Viet Cong around Da Nang, and we got to the end of 1967, early 1968, and there was a, a holiday in Vietnam approaching, and it was called Tet, the Lunar New Year, a very, very sacred and popular holiday in the Vietnamese culture. And the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong approached the South Vietnamese government and said, how about a truce for a week, 10 days? So let your soldiers and ours get a little rest and recuperation. Some of your soldiers can get back home and we will observe this sacred new year. The South Vietnamese government was a little bit skeptical, but decided to go along with it. And their army, uh, their uh, 
United States uh, comrades at arms decided, well, if you're going to do it, we'll go along with it, but we're going to keep an eye open for things. And the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong had no intention of observing that truce. And the Tet New Year started on February 1st, 1968, and it was marked by two major actions, two major sneak attacks by North Vietnamese and Viet Cong soldiers. Number one, they attacked the capital of Saigon and almost got inside the U.S. Embassy, but were repulsed quickly. The major battle, which personifies and was a turning point in the Vietnam War, was the battle for Hue City. Hue City is the ancient imperial capital of South Vietnam, and Hue City was very important for propaganda purposes because it was a capital. It's where the imperial uh, families used to live. It was a city within a city, and on February 1st, the North Vietnamese sent six battalions of soldiers into the city of Hue. And of course, all the South Vietnamese troops were home on leave. Uh, there was a small skeleton force of U.S. soldiers in the, what's called the MACV compound, and the city was quickly overrun. The Marines got word that something was going on in Hue City, but they didn't know what, and they also had heard about Saigon and this offensive. And so Alpha Company 1-1, under the command of Captain Gordon Batchelder, was sent to, quote, see what was going on in Way City. Captain Batchelder marched his company into the city of Way, and it was silent. Immediately he noticed a North Vietnamese flag flying over the citadel, the ancient imperial capital. And his radio man says, Skipper, look, the next street over, there's a bunch of Marines running down the street parallel to us. Captain Batchelder looked over, he says, son, unless there's no Marines over five foot six, those aren't Marines, those are North Vietnamese regulars. And the battle for Hue City was joined. Now remember, the first division was fighting in the jungles around Da Nang. They had no experience or training in urban warfare. And all of a sudden, they were trying to liberate a city with six battalions of seasoned North Vietnamese regulars and four battalions of Viet Cong holding that city. Captain Batchelder didn't even have a map of the city. As a matter of fact, he was going down the street with his command group and he saw a shell station with a light on. Captain Batchelder, being a our generation, where service stations used to give you maps, said maybe there's a map in that shell station, went to the shell station, shined his flashlight in, and saw a map on the wall, broke the window, and fought for three days with the service station map. Captain Batchelder was joined by the 5th Marines, three battalions of the 5th Marines, and the battle for Way City was, in, was joined, and again, no experience in urban warfare, no logistics. We were not allowed to use heavy artillery or airstrikes because of the sensitivity of the ancient imperial capital. And we fought for 29 days to liberate the city of Hue from the North Vietnamese. When I visited uh, Hue City on my return trip, we saw the site of one battle where a company of Marines fought a battalion of NVA for three days across the street from each other, 30 feet apart. And we've eventually liberated the city. 
not without great cost. 147 Marines were killed. 858 were wounded. A thousand South Vietnamese soldiers who eventually got back into the battle were, were killed and over 1,800 were wounded. North Vietnamese casualties were put at 5,014 and 80 captured, prisoners of war, and two wounded. In other words, they fought to the death. The city was liberated, but the Battle of Way City was the turning point in this war because the American public, who was not crazy about this war, we were starting to get protests, starting to get upheaval about the, the war and the strategy, and should we be there, and why are we there, and what was the Gulf of Tonkin all about. And this battle and this Tet Offensive changed the American mindset towards the Vietnam War forever. In fact, Walter Cronkite, the famous commentator for CBS, was quoted as saying, this war cannot be won. We have reached a stalemate. And that's the beginning of the end of U.S.'s United States involvement, although it lasted until 1972, it's the beginning of the end of the U.S. involvement. Also, after the city was liberated, we found graves for 5,000 civilians who were slaughtered by the North Vietnamese, mainly educators, uh, soldiers home on leave, and civilians. At the same time that Hue City was taking place, the other major battle in the Vietnam War was just starting to rumble, and that was a battle for Quezon. Quezon was thought to be a major effort of the North Vietnamese to defeat the United States Marines on the ground. And they surrounded Quezon, which is a base in the highlands. It had an airstrip. They surrounded it and cut off all resupply except for by air to the Quezon base, and the U.S. High Command thought that the real intention of the Tet Offensive was to occupy people and soldiers and mines with what's going on in South Vietnam and then overrun Quezon. The Marines fought, mainly the 26th Marine Regiment fought in Quezon, for two and a half months, every day, they were surrounded. Resupply was by helicopters, and resupply in the helicopters in C-130s, as you can see in that panel, that C-130 caught some rockets and mortars when they landed at uh, Quezon, and that was a pretty normal occurrence. So planes had to get in and out very fast, and that C-130 didn't make it, and Casualties had the first priority, uh, followed by um, resupply, and if there was uh, room in the aircraft and time to load it, troops going home and uh, troops having to go to, to Da Nang for one reason or another got a flight out. Which brings me to this picture of this Marine behind me. As you can see, that Marine is sort of personifies the Vietnam War. Number one, on his helmet, he has what's called a short timer's calendar. He's got 13 months. We did not go over as units. We went over as individuals. We joined a unit in Vietnam. We served our 13 months. 
and got out. So he has a short timers calendar. He also has his initials and the last four numbers of his service record on the uh, helmet, uh, camouflage cover, and his blood type. Marines did not wear their dog tags around their neck because they made noise and it could give away an ambush site. And so we tied the dog tags in our bootlaces and put the blood type to, to uh, have uh, enable corpsmen to treat us quickly on our helmet. Now this Marine was also smoking a cigarette, as was the Marine in Operation Starlight. A lot of people don't realize in this day and age that the government gave us cigarettes for free. Four cigarettes with every meal. That Marine was a lieutenant in the Los Angeles Police Department after he got out of the Marine Corps, came to visit the museum, didn't know his picture was up there, and uh, uh, I keep telling people the reason that that Marine's picture is up there, uh, and all these pictures, black and white pictures, were taken by a photographer from Life magazine named David Douglas Duncan, a real talented, still alive in Paris, France, 99 years old. And he took all these pictures, and I told the lieutenant from LAPD, the only reason his picture got up there is the only Marine I ever saw that had something that was uh, GP rated for, <laughs> for mixed audiences on the side of his helmet. Okay, other uh, panels and, and interesting uh, exhibits in this uh, uh, room are, uh, we have a tribute to, this was a tank that was in the Battle of Way City. We have a, a lengthy uh, uh, exhibit in the back about booby traps in Vietnam. And that exhibit was funded by a Marine who was wounded by a booby trap in Vietnam, who's become a very successful entrepreneur. His name is Robert Parsons, Bob Parsons. Started a company called GoDaddy.com. And uh, uh, that's a very creative exhibit. Uh, shows uh, the booby traps and on the back of it is a uh, mock-up of a, um, a Viet Cong cave. And uh, everything in our exhibit here is color-coded on the map here to the color of the panel so you can find, find your way. Of particular interest to me, then I'll close, and, and if you have any uh, questions, I'll be happy to, to field those. Over in the corner, there's a tribute to Navy, strange in, the, in a Marine exhibit. Well, the Marines don't have their own medical people, nor do they have their own chaplains. So we have a tribute back there to Marine Corps uh, corpsmen, Navy corpsmen, commonly called DOC and treated like Marines. And we have an exhibit back there to a Catholic priest named Father Vincent Capadonna. And uh, those of you who are familiar with the New York area and Vincent Capadonna Boulevard and, and uh, uh, across the water, the water there, and Father Capadonna was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions in uh, Vietnam. He extended his tour for six months. On his uh, extension, there was an operation going on, Operation Hastings. And he actually stowed away upon a helicopter to go out, go out in the field with his Marines. Two of his Marines were pinned down in a rice paddy by a machine gun. Father Capadonna ran out and threw his body across theirs trying to save them. Unfortunately, he was unsuccessful. He's known in our, in our uh, circles as the Grunt Padre. He's quite a, uh, quite a man. In fact, Father Capadonna has been submitted for sainthood in the Catholic Church. So we might have a, our second uh, Navy uh, Medal of Honor, but it'll be the first saint. 
And uh, so do you have any questions for me, Ralph? Well, one question is how people can contribute to the museum. We want them to come, we want them to see it, but I also understand that they can provide Vietnam veterans, families can contribute to the museum. Yes, we have a, a 501c3 foundation that supports the activities from the Marines uh, for the museum, builds new exhibits, maintains the museum. We don't get any direct funding from the Marine Corps. And we have a lot of people who patronize our gift shop, which is operated by the foundation. As you'll, as you'll see in a couple hours, uh, it gets very busy here because families come and shop. And uh, uh, the meager profits that we make in that gift shop go to improve the museum. And we also have several levels of participation uh, for, for institutional donors. And we also have a wall downstairs that people can buy a plaque and commemorate the, their activities. And uh, you'll see a, uh, a, uh, a plaque honoring uh, General Conway. No, Pete Conway, I believe, uh, spoke at our dinner. Got you, had your role about five years ago. <laughs> so, uh, well, so did Bob to me. <laughs> yeah, there, there we go. So uh, that's how the museum is supported. And it's, uh, we're very proud of it here. Besides the recruits that come in, we get special groups. We get uh, groups from uh, civic organizations, Boy Scouts. Sort of neat, we had two, boy, uh, two troops of Boy Scouts in about six months ago. Came in for Saturday because there's a merit badge for interviewing veterans. And so we uh, gave the tour. And one of the parents was along with two Boy Scouts. And, and she seemed to really be into what I was saying. And I said, you seem to be very familiar. She says, well, my husband's a major in the Marine Corps, and he's currently deployed. Oh, great. And your sons certainly show it. Right then, her husband came up on the internet, and he went through the tour, half the museum, with his two boys. And he's sitting there in Afghanistan. A concurrent and consistent flow of information, pre-digested by me for your consumption and digestion. This is The David Webb Show.